All right. You're not going to find better announcements givers than we have at Cornerstone. It really is true. All right. Well, good morning. All right, listen, okay? I've thought about this in my house, just mon- you know, meandering through my home, and I've got to deal with it. You guys, we have great announcement givers. We have horrible good morningers. <laughs> you guys never respond to me when I say good morning. And I mean it. Like, I mean it when I say good morning. Out of love. I love you guys, and good morning. You don't have to yell it. It doesn't have to be like my kids talking back to me or like, you know, just kind of shoving it in my face. But we're going to grow in this. This is a part of discipleship that we are going to grow in. And here's why. I don't have a short sermon, so I need to do this fast. But I feel like the announcement givers, they get a really good good morning from you guys. And then by the time I get up here, you're just like, we did that already. So, let's get past that, okay? We're going we're gonna to get past that together. All right. Well, this morning we are continuing our study through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're going to be going uh, through verses 11 through 17 of chapter 1. So, go ahead and turn there. As we've seen in the past few weeks, Paul gets right to the point of defending his apostleship in this letter and the gospel that he presented to the Galatians. He's defending his apostleship. He's defending the gospel that he had presented to the Galatians. And he's been accused of being a people pleaser and one whose gospel is a secondhand gospel. Rival teachers were saying that Paul's motives and message could not be trusted and that he was leaving out necessary parts of the gospel, specifically the law and circumcision. He was doing that, they said, to make it more compelling to the Gentiles. Paul is addressing those rival teachers in this letter. In the text today, Paul continues to defend himself against them. He does this by beginning to point to his call as a follower and apostle of Jesus. He seeks to give evidence to the fact that the gospel that he preached to them did not come from man, but came from the Lord. And so, Let's get into the text and work through it. If you're able to stand, please do so and follow along as I read. Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. For when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Such a blessing to us, Lord, a gift to us, and we pray that you'd help us in this time, Lord, that you'd be glorified as we look, and that we would know you better and love you more through it. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Remember at the beginning of this letter in verse 3, Paul prays for grace and peace to be given to the Galatians from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace comes through the truth about Jesus the Messiah. And Paul's purposeful in seeking to clear up the lies that have been told to these Galatians, lies that will cause them to turn away from the true gospel. He says clearly in verse 10 that he's not seeking the approval of man but of God. And now as we continue in these verses that follow, he seeks the same. Verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In verses 11 and 12, Paul's highlighting the difference between himself and these rival teachers that have come to Galatia. His gospel, he's saying, was not made up by humans. It had come from God himself. And Paul begins here by saying, I would have you know. And almost then repeats the point he made in verse 1, except that in verse 1, it was Paul's apostleship that was not through a human, and here in verse 11, it is his gospel that is not man's gospel. The false teachers were saying that the gospel he preached was something he came up with himself or with the help of others. It was invented by humans. And what Paul is saying is that his gospel is divine in origin. It cannot be dismissed as merely a human gospel account. He says here that he didn't receive the gospel from some chain of human tradition, nor was he taught it. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't familiar with this tradition and even taught it himself. But he's saying that the gospel came to him not through a secondhand source, The gospel came to him through a revelation of Jesus Christ, literally through the unveiling of Jesus Christ to Paul. Before Paul began to follow Jesus, he was known as Saul. Now, for most of the time throughout the rest of the sermon, I'm going to refer to him as Paul, okay? Sometimes it was when he was known as Saul and sometimes as Paul. He was, among many other things, a violent persecutor of those who followed the way of Christians, of Jesus' followers. And at that time, Paul didn't fully or grasp or understand the message that he was rejecting, violently rejecting. His eyes at the time were veiled. He didn't understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ, of the Messiah. 
Later, he refers to that substitutionary atonement in Galatians 3.13, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ died in our place. Paul didn't understand that before his encounter with Jesus. He didn't believe that. He believed that Jesus' death by crucifixion proved that he could not be the Messiah. He believed that the followers of Jesus threatened the centrality of the law. He didn't know yet that the end of the law did not threaten what the Old Testament taught, but actually fulfilled what the Old Testament taught. So on the road to Damascus, through a revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ being unveiled before Saul, his spiritual eyes were opened even as his physical eyes were blinded in that moment. Paul is writing here about a moment when everything changed for him. When suddenly Jesus, already enthroned in heaven, became visible to his naked eye on earth. This is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Christ, the Messiah, and all that was promised in Him has come. The promises were all true and all fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Paul's saying he didn't receive his gospel from a human being. No, he saw the risen Christ on the Damascus road. It goes on in verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Paul was zealous for God. Even before his encounter with Jesus, that's what he's referring to here. And we're going to get into this more in a bit, how zealous he was and why that is so important here, but he refers to his persecutions, how he persecuted the church of God violently. We read about those accounts in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when Stephen is being stoned to death for his faith in Jesus, it says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first we see of Saul's involvement in the violent persecution of Jesus' followers. And just after that, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, continuing from Stephen's death, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the same man who wrote this letter of Galatians and many others in the New Testament. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Here in Galatians, he's pointing back to that evidence of his previous zeal for God. Because at that time, he was convinced that his persecution demonstrated zeal for the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And his goal in persecuting the church was to destroy it was to wipe it off of the face of the earth. That's what he writes here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For Saul, as a part of the Pharisees who sought to promote the Jewish way of life, zeal meant this toxic combination of prayer, and then when it was necessary, serious violence. And that violence was meant to purge the Jewish world of blasphemy. And specifically, the nonsense of a crucified Messiah. Paul's saying he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And he advanced, he says, beyond many of his own age. And he's not referring there to book learning, even though he was superior in book learning. He means in Judaism. The traditions of the fathers, he excelled, he says. And in that zeal, he asked for letters to go and attack the church in Damascus. Now, now Saul probably saw himself as, as a new Phineas or Elijah. Two Old Testament examples of zeal that resulted in the death of outsiders, of non-believers. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, Paul continues to emphasize that his transformation was the work of God alone, of nothing that he could do in and of himself. God had destined Paul from the time he was in his mother's womb to be an apostle and called him to be such at a particular time in history on the way to Damascus. This language is similar to that of Isaiah and Jeremiah as prophets. Isaiah declares that the Lord called him from the womb of his mother. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Also, the Lord knew Jeremiah before he was in his mother's womb, and he appointed and set him apart as a prophet before his birth. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Just as 
Isaiah and Jeremiah were called as prophets, so also the Lord appointed Paul to be an apostle. And he's emphasizing here how he was divinely appointed. It was the Lord who appointed him to this before he was even born. Romans 1, 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That call that he refers to there and he refers to here in Galatians, that call was by God's grace. Paul says in verse 15, that word calling means a call that is effective, a call that convinces the one who is being called. And then verses 16 and 17. Called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. When God called Paul as an apostle sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, when God revealed the gospel to Paul, Paul didn't hurry off to ask others about the legitimacy of the revelation. He didn't go and consult with anyone as to what he saw. He didn't go and visit the apostles to see what their input would be about what he had seen on the road to Damascus. He didn't go and consult with anyone as to what he saw. Instead, it says he went away. We find out from verse 17 that the account that we have in Acts 9 is incomplete. Now, that doesn't mean inaccurate. It means that in Acts, Luke, the writer of Acts, gets right to the point of Paul preaching the gospel. But there was a gap there. There was an extended period of time. Galatians fills out the historical record by telling us that Paul, after spending some time in Damascus, traveled to Arabia and then returned to Damascus, which is where Acts chapter 9 picks up. Now, I want to spend some time on this, really on what Paul is saying, revealing in verses 15 through 17. I want us to think about what has happened. So often, we look at Acts chapter 9, the, the story of the road to Damascus with Saul, and we think this is where Saul, Paul, was converted. And of course, if we mean the right thing by the word converted there, then yes, that is true. But we can so easily mean something else than what is accurate. Because most people, if they're, if they're converted today, are coming from a position of atheism or agnosticism or, or another formal religious group and into a meaningful Christian faith. And that's kind of our understanding of what conversion is. But we can agree that that's not the case for Paul here. Paul didn't shift from what we would call one religion to another. Paul himself insists in the book of Acts 
that he had always been loyal to who? He had always been loyal to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not just that, Paul had always cherished the law and the promises. He loved the prophets. He knew and loved the Psalms. And he continued to do that after his encounter on the road to Damascus. Those things didn't change. And here's something we, we, we should not forget. Saul of Tarsus, just like many devout Jews, was longing for and praying for God's Messiah to be revealed. For God's Messiah to appear, to defeat the wicked pagans and to rescue his people. And that's significant. When Saul came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah and the true Lord of the world, that was thoroughly a Jewish belief. That is what he had been taught and prayed for his entire life. That belief only made sense within a biblical worldview. It was the coming to fruition of the promises that had been made throughout the Old Testament, not the abandonment of those promises. So we shouldn't think that Paul was not eager for the Messiah to come. He just never expected that he would look like a crucified Jesus. It was the same God, the God who, he says in verse 15, set him apart before he was born. And the point that Paul's making as he continues to rebut the, the charges of the rival teachers is that his gospel was given by God in the unveiling of the risen Jesus, that his eyes were opened. The Messiah he longed and prayed for that one he was zealous to defend, had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he had been crucified, and as Paul saw with his own eyes, was raised from the dead. The fact that Paul saw Jesus alive, raised from the dead, is proof that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and proof that his death really did deal with sin. Saul saw the Messiah, the one he longed for, and he believed. But he didn't just go to Jerusalem, which would have made sense. I mean, how many of us, if we, we had this encounter, and we know that the, the apostles that we hate, but the ones that are promoting this message of Jesus the Messiah are in Jerusalem, how many of us, our first thought would be, well, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's talk to these guys. But he doesn't go there at first. Again, verse 17 says he went to Arabia and then back to Damascus. And I think this is amazing. It's something I've never considered before. Arabia is where you find Mount Sinai. In fact, Paul references that later in this book. 
in Galatians chapter 4. The place where the covenant with Israel had been made in the first place. N.T. Wright mentions here that the strongest biblical resonance is in verses 10 through 17 is 1 Kings chapter 19. Paul, the man of zeal, was modeling himself on the heroes of zeal from days of old. Chief among them were Phineas and Elijah. Now, let's think. What happened in 1 Kings chapter 19? In 1 Kings 18 is the story we all remember from Sunday school, right? You have, you have Elijah who goes uh, before and confronts the uh, prophets of Baal. And they have this great challenge, right? And so, uh, whoever can, can set up their altar and call and their God sends fire down to consume from heaven this, this sacrifice on the altar, then their God is the true God. Of course, the prophets of Baal call and call and call out, and nothing happens. But when Elijah calls out to God, fire consumes his sacrifice. That's a brief summary. Then, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, right after that amazing thing had happened, and Elijah's zeal for Yahweh is highlighted, He's threatened by Ahab and Jezebel, and he flees in fear. He runs away. And where does he go? He goes to Mount Sinai, to the place where God had entered into covenant with the people of Israel. And he goes there tired, and he goes there depressed. He has shown zeal And he doesn't understand why it has gone so wrong. And in his complaint to the Lord, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for Yahweh of hosts. Two times he says that in chapter 19. Paul here in Galatians in his defense says the same thing. I was extremely zealous for for the Lord. Then in 1 Kings chapter 19, do you know what the Lord says to Elijah in response to his cry to him and and his plea and complaint of, I've been very zealous to Yahweh of hosts? The Lord says to Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. You fast forward to the New Testament, Saul consumed with zeal, and then encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he goes off to Arabia. And it seems likely, from what we are seeing here in Galatians, and Paul's reference later to Mount Sinai, that Paul went to Mount Sinai in Arabia to do business with the one God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's been stopped. He's been stopped in his tracks on the road to Damascus, and he needs time with his God and no one else. The God of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then meeting him there, he is sent back to do business for God, to announce that the Messiah, crucified and risen, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's sent back then to Damascus, just as Elijah was. The story that Paul is telling here is that God 
of the God of grace. And that in the midst of his zeal that we read and would define as wickedness, God is gracious. And in his grace, he reveals his son to those who seek him, just as he did to Paul. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation that Jesus came, the Son of God, born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect life, demonstrating to us what it means to live for God. And that He died as a sacrifice for our sins, that He was raised from the dead so that whoever believes in Him will be credited with His righteousness just as He was credited with our transgressions. So I would encourage you this morning, if you have seen Him, if God has revealed Him to you in your hearts, if what, if, we, if what we know took place with Saul, who becomes Paul, has taken place in your heart, just as God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that it does for everyone who knows Him, then rejoice. It is because of His grace alone that you know God. It's because of His grace alone that you know that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to take away the sin of the world. It's because of His effective call and the revelation of Jesus Christ that you are His, that you believe. It's not because of your own strength. It's not because of anything you have done or accomplished yourself. It's because of God. And so as we go into a time now where we remember the Lord and take the Lord's Supper. Let's do it with a heart that rejoices. That we remember, Jesus, you really did come. You really did come to this earth. You took on flesh. And you lived the life that we cannot even come close to living. You lived without sin. And you gave your life as a sacrifice for what we have done against you. Your body was literally broken and your blood was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that whoever believes will receive eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask you that you would help us. Lord, you're amazing. Your grace is amazing. We're so needful. We're hopeless without you and your grace. We praise you for the grace that you showed to Saul. The man who later then writes that he's the worst of sinners who delights in the mercy and grace of his king. Pray that you'd help us in these moments as we prepare to partake of the bread and the cup, that we would remember rightly, that we would think on you, Jesus, and what you have done for us. And that through the cross and through your resurrection, you have made a way for our eyes to be opened just as Saul's eyes were opened to believe 
and to trust in you for eternal life. We praise you and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.